Welcome to another RCSLT podcast. My name is Jacques Strauss and I'm standing in for Amit Kulkarni, Head of Research at RCSLT. This is an IJLCD podcast that is the International Journal of Language and Communication Disorders and it's a series in which we interview authors of articles that we think may be of interest to speech and language therapists in the UK and beyond. The NHS is very rarely not in the news in one way or another. Inevitably, the conversation involves outcomes and wait times and money. Indeed, the COVID pandemic has made the problem particularly acute. According to the British Medical Association in December 2021, there was a record of over 6 million people waiting for treatment. The BMA notes that the proportion of patients seen by a specialist consultant within two weeks of an urgent GP referral for suspected cancer remains worryingly low. The 93% target for patients to be seen within that time frame has not been met since May 2020. Generally, the public's response is more money for more doctors and nurses, which of course is important. But for those of us that have either worked for or with the NHS in some capacity, we know the answer is much more complicated. We need to look at new technologies such as artificial intelligence, novel devices, the use of data, more care in the community, including improved primary care, procedures and processes, including improved management and leadership, and of course, innovation and creative thinking in the roles of clinicians, especially across the allied health professions. And that's what today's paper by Louise Ockermore-Kent, Ellie Hatch and Madeleine Cruz is looking at. It's titled Scoping Opinion, Speech and Language Therapist Views on Extending Their Role to the Urgent Ear, Nose and Throat Pathway. The idea of extending scope of practice in this area was originally brought to the RCSLT by Mr. Tyron Tartler, Consultant ENT Head and Neck Surgeon at London Northwest University Healthcare NHS Trust. He approached the RCSLT to explore this idea further and then worked with the authors on this paper. In this podcast, we're talking to Louise, and I started by asking her to introduce herself. So I'm a speech and language therapist. Um, My clinical background is in um, head and neck cancers and ear, nose and throat disorders. Um, And I was a clinical lead um, for for that service at Bart's Health NHS Trust, um, where I still hold an honorary contract and carry out some clinical work. Um, And then I moved to um, City University of London uh, a few years ago now, um, where I work as a lecturer um, and I teach our students there um, on, on that clinical area, um, as well as professional studies. Uh, and my research interests really at the moment are mainly around um, innovative models of working um, for speech and language therapists in working with, uh, with our clients who have uh, voice and swallowing disorders, and particularly at the moment on the two-week wait uh, cancer pathway, which um, hopefully I'll be able to describe a little bit more uh, in this podcast. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So you've obviously you've just written a fascinating paper, which has been published by the IJLCD, um, which is you know related to what you were just talking about. I wonder if you could tell us broadly what what question were you trying to answer? Um, I think uh, in in the first instance, it was really in response to a clinical problem. Um, so uh, it would probably be useful for me to give a little bit of background uh, about what that clinical problem is. Um, so uh, in the UK, um, if a uh, 
patient presents to their GP um, with a red flag symptom. That is a symptom that is suggestive that they may be at risk um, of having a cancer diagnosis. Um, Then that patient should be seen within two weeks by a specialist service, usually in secondary care or a hospital setting um, by a relevant um, medical uh, member of the team um, to establish whether or not they have a cancer diagnosis. Um, And that's referred to as the two week wait pathway. Um, And we have one of those um, specific to head and neck cancer. um, And those uh, red flag symptoms include uh, symptoms that are also of interest to us as speech and language therapists. So um, persistent hoarseness for more than three weeks, for example. So voice problems um, that are persistent for more than three weeks um, and difficulties swallowing as well, um, particularly um, difficulties um, at the the oral or the pharyngeal or the throat stage of swallowing. Um, And those might be red flag symptoms um, for a potential head and neck cancer. Um, But also what we know is that uh, a vast majority of our benign or non-cancerous voice um, and swallowing caseload uh, would also be uh, included um, among those patients um, who have, so for example, patients who have muscle tension dysphonia um, uh, as one one example of that, um, or reflux, for example, that uh, that isn't being well managed. Um, And so... Uh, what uh, what we know of that um, pathway at the moment is that around 230,000 roughly patients in the UK are referred through that pathway each year. Um, and uh, only around 5% on average of, of those patients um, actually uh, have a cancer diagnosis, um, which is really fantastic news for the other 95% of patients who come through that pathway who, are, who thankfully are able to be told that they don't have cancer. Um, But clinically, I suppose what we see um, and what we're interested in is is in those 95% that um, it's great that they don't have a cancer diagnosis, but then they might be uh, discharged from that pathway back to their GP, for example. Um, But they still have whatever their symptom was. So they still have that persistent hoarseness or they still have that swallowing difficulty. Um, And sometimes they bounce around services. Anecdotally, we find they might uh, have um, see multiple different uh, specialties uh, or they might go back onto uh, another waiting list for uh, a routine ENT clinic. um, And then sort of many weeks or months down the line might uh, come to speech and language therapy for us to have have to carry out an assessment um, of those symptoms and and provide advice and treatment. Um, So I suppose the question really here is, are we able to improve um, that patient experience um, for the 95%? Um, And do SLTs have a role um, with those 95% of patients? Um, So could we be seeing them a little bit earlier in that two-week wait pathway if we're able to identify who those patients are um, who are at lower risk um, of having uh, having a cancer diagnosis, um, and um, how might that look? Um, how might we be able to provide that that better service to really improve their experience and hopefully their outcomes? And so that sort of brings me back, I suppose, to your original question about what our clinical question is that we're trying to answer. Um, there's lots of work, as you can probably tell, uh, that needs to be done. Um, to look at whether this is a, a viable um, uh, proposition, really. Um, and we're only dipping our toe in the water, but we're, we're looking at something that's really important. And that's what, what are SLT's views um, of this type of model of care. Um, for this to be viable, of course, we need um, interest from SLTs. We need to know that there's, uh, there's an appetite to, to extend scope of practice in this way among our profession um, for this to be something that's, that's viable and sustainable. Okay, so that's fascinating. Thank you. It's an incredibly comprehensive answer. Let me make sure that I've uh, understood all the complexity and subtlety involved here. So we're saying is we have these um, red flag symptoms, but they're extremely broad. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if a a patient presents with these symptoms 
Um, often the GP will say, well, they need to be referred to an ENT. They need to see an ENT within two weeks because if they're at risk of a head or neck cancer, the vast majority of them don't have. So there's two issues here. There's the one issue of resourcing because we're sending, did you say something about 270,000 patients a year for to for ENT referrals? Um, and then there's the issue of patient outcomes because when they don't have cancer, what then happens to them then? Are their symptoms being managed? Um, so we understand that's the scope of the problem. And then you're saying, is it possible to involve um, SLTs earlier in that two-week process? And so we, we're talking about a new, a new kind of model. Could you just take us a little bit under the hood of that model? So a patient presents with red flags, and then what is the, what is the potential suggestion? First things first, they go and see an SLT, and then they may not see an ENT at all? Or what, what is the thinking about what the models could look like? Um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think when we were starting to conduct this research, what we didn't want to do was to be too prescriptive. Um, so we didn't want to uh, put forward uh, a proposed model that's very specific. So we know that um, existing baseline models across the country um, will be slightly different and what maybe works for one service might not work for another. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. so we wanted to keep things relatively broad. And so when we were conducting the research, we didn't necessarily propose a really specific way about how this would work. And what we were hoping that would do is to generate SLT's views um, around what advantages or disadvantages um, they might perceive and that that might help us to shape how that model might look. Um, so, for example, um, thinking about whether um, uh, this would need to be a clinic that needs to be run in parallel. So uh, would um, potentially patients come in and see um, ENT for some form of triage and then come into the speech therapy room immediately afterwards once it was established that they were uh, low risk or had no cancer and see us at that stage? Would it be completely SLT led? So could there be some form of paper triage um, at the start of the uh, the patient's journey? And once it was established uh, using a paper or a telephone based triage, perhaps um, that they were felt to be low risk using certain criteria that then they could come straight to speech and language therapy from the outset for that uh, initial assessment um, and then to, to commence advice and treatment as needed. Um, and so, like I say, we weren't too prescriptive, but these are sort of the various options that might be on the table. And I think thinking about um, the current NHS agenda around um, helping to move services closer to patients out in the community, for example, is there any scope for standalone clinics? So does this need to be run in a hospital at all? Or could this be run in primary care um, in line with what we know is important um, to, to the NHS currently and, and where services are going and what's important to our patients? Um, and what we wanted to know from SLTs were what their views would be um, on the broad idea of it in the hope that those views would would shape how this might need to run from a, from a governance perspective, from a patient experience perspective, um, from a, a supervision and, and SLT workforce perspective as well. Can we generally talk about, you know, the existing literature in this this research, which I guess is is the the existing literature is is sort of expanding expanding clinicians' roles. Um, well, I think, you know, as, as you, as you um, can probably tell, this is uh, very novel, as you've said. So there's not uh, some specific literature we can look to already. Um, certainly at the time when we conducted um, these focus groups, which was at the end of 2019. So we're talking pre-COVID, really. Um, so we need to sort of look more more widely and more broadly at the literature. And like you say, um, aspects such as um, extending scope of practice. And this is something that's... Uh, 
uh, NHS England strategy currently um, around uh, AHPs into action, for example. So um, allied health professionals have been identified as being a workforce uh, with plenty of skills that are perhaps being underutilised and could be utilised further. And so when we look to some of our uh, other disciplines, our colleagues, such as nursing, for example, um, there is literature that we can we can draw on there. Um, so, uh, for example, they have very successful um, advanced practice roles um, that are already running in colorectal screening and prostate screening programmes, for example. Um, and they've uh, produced some really useful literature um, that tells us a little bit about um, uh, positive results in terms of patient experience and patient outcome. Um, so, for example, uh, patients uh, found it advantageous to be seen by um, somebody who's a talking therapist, perhaps who has a little bit more time to discuss those symptoms that they're presenting with um, and the conversational style um, that was offered by uh, by nursing uh, nursing workforce. Um, and also thinking about uh, adherence to treatment and advice. So um, some of the nursing literature talks about uh, having that uh, addition of time to be able to talk through with our patients what the treatment is, what the advice is, what questions they might have about that, and that that might improve um, patients' ability to follow that advice, again, owing to, to the increased time that we might have as allied health professionals and that style um, in which we communicate with our clients. Also, some really useful um, information comes out of, of, uh, of that from the nursing literature around uh, practicalities and logistics and um, things like, uh, for example, nurses found it useful for the clinic to have uh, have its own name in its own right rather than being a nurse led part of the, um, the medical clinic. And that was important for staff to feel um, valued, for example, um, and that they're adding something to that patient's journey rather than being um, suboptimal to to um, to the medical workforce, for example, um, and for patient confidence as well. I think that's really um, important that they're uh, seeing what, what the benefits are of that clinic um, as an example. Um, we can also look abroad as well. So there are some really successful uh, low-risk Hoarseness uh, clinics run uh, currently in Australia. So um, Seabrook et al. and Peyton et al. Um, have both uh, produced some really useful data on their clinics, um, where again, they apply this idea of uh, triaging patients based on their risk who are coming into the ENT pathway. Um, and they've found uh, really useful outcomes like reduced waiting times, um, no adverse events in any of those clinics, um, and in some cases, cost improvement as well. Um, so I think that's some really useful um uh, literature for us to look to um, about whether any of those sorts of models could be applied in the UK um, and how easy it would be to uh, to extrapolate those findings to our own own models. I think also since um, things have been progressing in this area, we can look to the ENT literature as well. And of course, we're thinking really about uh, predominantly an ENT um, problem um, in many ways. So uh, in, uh, in ENT, the focus is um, quite a lot on how do we identify those 5% of patients who have uh, who have cancer. And there's been some really useful um, retrospective analysis of thousands of patients who've come through that head and neck cancer pathway um, by Professor Polari and colleagues um, who have managed to refine the predictive criteria um, for head and neck cancers. Um, and so that may potentially uh, pose an opportunity for us um, with those refined criteria on the flip side to try and identify some of those um, lower risk patients who would be appropriate for a speech therapy led clinic, for example. Um, so I think we're sort of looking more broadly at the literature um, to, to help us um, draw on, on findings from, uh, from other disciplines, for example, and from abroad to, uh, to think about how, how they might be applied um, in, in addressing our own uh, uh, patient caseload. 
So just a quick question then, um, and in those in those other areas, so with nursing and, and the people abroad, what was the attitude of the clinicians to this this the sort of change in scope um, in their role? Was it was it generally positively received or? Um, I think that that's something that um, we we don't know that clearly from the literature at this stage. Um, so uh, right. we know that certainly where where these models are are being conducted, um, that there there is support um, from from colleagues, and certainly there'll be training and supervision required with where those models are running successfully. Um, and uh, one of the things that we're looking to do at the moment, I'm working um, as part of a. Um, a research team at the moment and we're conducting some uh, some interviews with ENT surgeons in the UK to establish their views I think that's really crucial um, you know we need the support of our ENT colleagues for, for any model like this to be uh, effective and uh, and to work well um, and so I'm currently um, in a team with uh, professors Joe Patterson, Paul Carding um, and doctors Justin Rowe, John Hardman and Paula Bradley where we're um, conducting these interviews with, with ENT surgeons to establish their views to see what sort of of support um, we might find uh, in the UK um, broadly from from our ENT consultants. Sure. So, so getting more into the nitty gritty of your research, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, who you who you spoke to and kind of a little bit about your methodology. Yeah, absolutely. So it's probably best for me to start with the recruitment then. So we uh, targeted um, clinical excellence networks from the RCSLT around uh, around the whole of the UK. So it was really important to us, uh, given the um, the differences I've spoken about in service models um, across different regions of the UK, for example, uh, that we had representation um, from, from all regions of the UK as far as, as possible. Um, and we looked uh, particularly at um, clinical excellence networks and contacted them uh, who have... Um, uh, voice and head and neck clinicians within them um, and we were looking specifically at clinicians who might be appropriate to carry out this sort of extended role so particularly those clinicians working to around a band seven or eight um, sort of level and with existing relevant expertise so um, for example um, plenty of experience in working with um, voice and head and neck uh, clients um, carrying out um, and performing uh, flexible nasal endoscopy for example um, and given the, the lack of literature to date, really, we wanted to get some really rich um, and broad data and, and consider the, the variety of different views that, that might be um, out there among our workforce. So we uh, used a focus group methodology um, and uh, specifically we used something called nominal group technique. So um, nominal group technique um, is actually it was really great fun I think we had really good feedback from uh, from the clinicians who joined uh, joined the two focus groups who ran two focus groups um, at City University of London um, some participants attended via Zoom so like I say we were covering a, a large um, geographical area um, but most attended in person um, and so uh, we sort of all uh, sat around a large table we had plenty of snacks um, to see us through which is it was really helpful lots of refreshments um, and essentially um, what we looked at was asking two uh, key questions so we started by looking at what would be the advantages of this model um, and again we didn't give too much information about uh, about what that model might look like but just the the idea um, that there might be um, a speech and language therapist clinic early on in this two-week wait pathway and how that might work and and also sort of put out there maybe the idea that this might be in primary care perhaps and how might they feel about that so um, it might not necessarily be a parallel clinic run with an ENT in the room next door um, so we wanted to make sure we'd factored that in uh, to uh, establishing views as well 
Um, and so we asked, uh, first of all, we focused on the advantages and then we focused on um, on any disadvantages that were perceived by the participants. Um, and uh, what we then do is uh, give people some some thinking time and some writing time. So they do that on their own in silence. Um, and then uh, we go around the table and we write up every advantage that people can think of. So we go around the table one by one and we write them up on a, on a big board um, until we have exhausted everybody's uh, advantages and disadvantages and we take each one standalone at each time um, each question um, and then we check there are no duplicates and we uh, check that we've understood all of them correctly um, and so that gives us really a broad view of every advantage that, um, that the speech and language therapists could think of and then every disadvantage they could think of um, and crucially then what's really helpful is that we ask them to pick their uh, they're sort of top five or top eight, depending on how many um, how many responses you have and how many participants you have. Um, and then you ask them to to rank each of those in order. And um, so what then then that gives you is it gives you the the breadth of uh, of the possible advantages and disadvantages that everybody can think of. But it also tells you which of those are most important. Um, and that's carried out um, cumulatively um, with with the whole group. So it sort of is a, enables us to to look at um, you know these are the the key advantages and disadvantages. Maybe your top five or your top eight or your top ten um, uh, associated with this model. But we also have these other advantages and disadvantages that we, we can look to as well to make sure that we're considering everything um, if we're setting up this type of clinic. What did you find? Well, yeah, so it was uh, really great, actually. I think the, the main uh, positive thing for me when I was looking at the findings was that the key advantage that was identified by the clinicians cumulatively across the group reflected um, our main motivations in, in uh, carrying out this research. So what we're thinking about when we're uh, asking this research question is that clinical problem of trying to make things better for, for the 95% and trying to improve that the patient experience, the patient outcome. Um, and, and what came um, up uh, ranked most highly um, by the participants was um, increased quality and outcome was the top perceived advantage um, of, of this in terms of uh, sort of the key theme really. And that included things such as the ability to carry out a holistic consultation by a speech and language therapist at the start of that patient's pathway that this sort of model or this role would really attract speech and language therapists with specialist expertise that would then be available to these patients I think it's important to consider that even um, for those patients who don't have cancer their symptom was significant enough that their GP referred them in through a through a cancer pathway so um, you know they they are likely to have potentially quite significant difficulties with their voice or their swallowing and so the ability to then see a speech therapist with specialist expertise in this area was seen to be a real advantage more targeted care more quickly um, again so that sort of uh, that dovetails with that really um, and avoiding exacerbation of symptoms so we know um, clinically the importance of seeing our um, voice and dysphagia patients as early as we possibly can to to really try and avoid symptoms becoming worse over time and also speech and language therapists felt it really aligned with strategy um, so again picking out things like AHPs into action and this felt like a, a timely extension of our role perhaps efficiency improvements as well so um, of course things like improved waiting time targeted use of resources um, and, and key really was saving ENT for who needs them most so as well as uh, better target use of our time as a as a workforce and as a resource um, as speech and language therapists it also helps 
um, ENT to really uh, give the care that's required for the 5%. So I think, you know, it sort of really shows that it does address both of those aspects um, of, of the problem, the clinical problem that you you, you identified and summarised really nicely at, at the start, that it's about efficient use of SLT, efficient use of ENT. Um, and they felt that there might also be some cost benefit there too, which I think needs to be explored further. They also picked up some really interesting um, things around benefits and advantages for speech and language therapists as a profession. So um, job satisfaction, progression opportunity. So maybe for many of those speech and language therapists who might have been um, working for many years with this caseload um, at a band eight level, for example, it sort of gives them some uh, some way to extend their scope of practice uh, to progress and to continue um, developing skills um, as a therapist um, and I think that they were they were sort of the key the key findings in terms of advantages and, and like I say I think that ties in really nicely with putting the patient at the centre and thinking about how we're how we're improving that quality of care for the 95%. So what were the what were some of the disadvantages? Um, well I think you know the key one that is risk of course, what we don't want to do is put any of our patients at risk. That's completely undermining the, the entire purpose of, of looking at this um, as an idea um, of a, a novel model of service delivery. Um, and, and so the risk really uh, included things like the worry about potentially missing a diagnosis by, by a speech and language therapist in, in this clinic setting. Um, the level of increased responsibility, the potential for, for litigation and how the indemnity might work as well was seen as a potential disadvantage or problem. The amount of supervision and training required um, was also seen as a potential disadvantage um, and how this might be provided and by whom and, and how that might work. A lack of support in emergencies as well, thinking about risk. So uh, actually, if we were to run this clinic as a standalone clinic, um, and if that was in primary care, for example, if there was an emergency when performing a flexible nasendoscopy on a, on a client, uh, how would that be managed and who would support us in that situation? And again, thinking about this being potentially in a primary care setting, things like data storage risks, um, data transfer risks, how we would get data across um, to to our secondary care setting or our ENT colleagues if we needed to safely. Um, and I think uh, also thinking about risk, um, one of the key things that came out was around um, can can we be sure that the triage is reliable? So how might the triage look and how can we be sure that the 95% uh, are the patients who are included in those uh, coming through to to a speech and language therapy clinic um, and, and trying to avoid any of the 5% coming in through the speech therapy route. Um, and I think this is why it was so important to uh, to put out there the potential for this running in a primary care setting because the disadvantages that were put forward um, really included um, some quite detailed thinking around how that might work as opposed to, to running this in a secondary care or hospital setting. Um, I think also it really reflects um, some uh, patient public involvement work that I've conducted in the past as well, when I've asked um, service users about how they'd feel about this type of model. Um, and, and one of them uh, said that they felt really that triage is key. Um, they, they wouldn't have any concerns about being seen by a speech and language therapist in, in this scenario, and they could really see the perceived benefits. Um, but what they wanted to be assured of is that the triage um, is really robust. And so I think that that's, that's also reflected in these focus groups here, um, that speech and language therapists have identified that too, um, as something that's really needed 
Again, thinking about primary care, that storage and transfer of data, the availability of equipment, and also um, the potential for adding a step or a delay. So actually, if you haven't got an ENT surgeon in the in the room next door to you um, and you see a client and you think, actually, um, I'm not necessarily able to give you any immediate feedback right now, or I have a concern, I think you do need to be seen by ENT, then not receiving that immediate reassurance or immediate information um, following that consultation and potentially needing to come back in another time to see um, an ENT colleague um, would potentially add a, add a delay and how we would manage that to ensure that didn't happen. And again, that was reflected in the in the PPI work as well um, that I carried out. They wanted to be assured um, there wouldn't be any delay in their care. Of course, then there are also workforce um, issues. So um, are there enough speech and language therapists working at this level for this to be a sustainable proposition? Would the role be adequately remunerated given the increased level of responsibility? What skills are needed um, and are we valued enough by others? So if this were to be carried out in primary care for example some of the um, participants felt that uh, they're not sure that um, our value is perceived or maybe the way in which we work or what we can provide is very well known about in a primary care setting and would that be an issue Um, and then things around patient experience so you know we've talked about in the advantages that we perceive there might be uh, advantages for patients being seen by this model but uh, would patients agree so are they happy to be seen by an allied health professional rather than uh, an ENT consultant or registrar for example and the issues around whether they would always receive immediate feedback or whether there might be some potential they would still need to see ENT if there was something that we're we're not happy with when we carry out the the initial assessment and uh, the participants also raised some some issues around logistics and this again was where it was really useful having geographical representation so um, for example in Northern Ireland speech and language therapists um, we understand aren't able to refer to other allied health professionals like dietitians for example so that might be um, an issue there um, we know uh, that for uh, for England for example it's, it can be difficult for speech and language therapists to refer to other consultant led services so if patients needed a barium swallow following seeing us or if they needed a scan for example how how that might work logistically um, and prescription rights as well uh, as well as referral to other services how those sorts of things might work and we know that that there are prescriber courses and so on that we can go on now um, as allied health professionals and and many nurses are already uh, undergoing that training Um, but again just from a logistical perspective how that might work for this type of model. So you conducted this research pre-COVID but COVID has had a huge impact on the NHS and, and all clinicians. What's changed? What's happened since then? Um, yeah, I think it's a really, um, really interesting point because, uh, of course, these focus groups were conducted before the pandemic. And what we've seen is a huge impact, particularly in the area of ENT. So, of course, many of the uh, assessments and treatments carried out by uh, our ear, nose and throat colleagues are aerosol generating. So what that has uh, meant is that a really rapid change in the way that services are delivered has has been necessary. Um, and so we've seen some real advances in the ways that ENT um, are currently working that might well be useful for us um, in carrying this uh, this model of service delivery forward. So the refined referral criteria that I was talking about earlier in terms of the retrospective analysis of, of head and neck cancer patients coming through the pathway um, has been used by um, Professor Polari and colleagues to create a risk calculator tool. So at, uh, at the start of the pandemic, when 
uh, it was advised that um, patients should ideally be uh, telephone triaged and and uh, spoken with over the telephone rather than needing to see them face to face wherever possible. Um, it was necessary to try and uh, better identify the five percent of patients who were likely to have cancer on this pathway. And so those refer uh, refined referral criteria really uh, came came into their own and were able to be used for this uh, risk calculator tool. Um, and so actually what's already being done now in the NHS in many trusts is adopting this tool to better identify the 5% of patients who will go on to have cancer. Um, and on the flip side, of course, better identifying those 95% who are unlikely to have cancer or less likely to have cancer and therefore might be stratified as being lower risk. And so this is a, a really huge step forward um, in terms of identifying potential patients for an SLT-led pathway or AHP-led pathway. It doesn't maybe necessarily have to be speech and language therapists. And certainly um, in some uh, trusts currently around the country, um, some nurses are being used in some of these roles, um, physicians, assistants, for example, physicians associates I should say and that maybe opens up um, more opportunity for us to to step into some of these roles um, given the importance placed on the triage by both speech and language therapists and uh, patients as well if we know now that there are some advancements and some tools to to enable us to do that better then maybe we need to be looking at whether that's something that that enables this um, model of service delivery to be uh, conducted more safely than perhaps we may have had in our minds at the time um, before the pandemic, before these sorts of tools were available. I think also there we are beginning to to see this potential model now um, increasing um, interest, growing in interest, and we've um, definitely seen a little bit of uh, data being published already. So uh, Nottingham, for example, um, Suzanne Slade, who's a speech and language therapist there, um, is already has uh, carried out a pilot of this clinic and has published some of her data, which is really useful for us to see, um, which again shows um, she's produced some really nice case studies of patients to show um, how their care has been expedited, um, how their experience has been improved, and, uh, and that there have been no adverse events part of carrying out that, um, that clinic. So, you know, we're beginning to see some, some change. Um, so my final question to you is, um, obviously, there are a lot of uh, researchers that listen to this. What, what, are the, what are the next areas of research that we can begin to advance? What sounds like a really innovative and interesting proposal? Um, well, so, I mean, we've, we've started to explore speech and language therapists' views. Um, and since um, my focus groups, also um, Professor Joe Patterson and uh, Dr. Paula Bradley have also published a really helpful national survey of SLT's views of, uh, of how this sort of service might be implemented, um, which has been really, really helpful. Um, I think we now need to know more about the views of the wider MDT and especially ear, uh, our ear, nose and throat colleagues around the acceptability of this model, because that's really vital to its success. So as I said, we're already um, working to establish those views. Given the workforce issues that have been flagged up in terms of sustainability of this type of model, um, I think it's really useful um, with my with my lecturer hat on to be thinking about our future workforce and our students. So Dr. Madeline Cruz and I are currently conducting um, a survey among our students who are really the future workforce to think about uh, what their level of interest is um, in working in head and neck and voice and, and specifically whether they would have any interest in carrying out this sort of role. You know, do they see that as being something um, that's of interest to them thinking about their their career pathway and thinking uh, more about the near future we still obviously have lots of questions to answer about how this uh, model might work so 
um, what's the best method of identifying patients from the two-week wait pathway that would be appropriate for a speech therapy-led um, low-risk clinic? Um, who does the triage? How do they do it? How does that look? What governance could be put in place to mitigate the risks and the disadvantages that have been identified in these focus groups? So, for example, um, should we be recording and storing uh, images of every scope that we carry out? Who would be reviewing those and how many would they need to review? Would it be all of them or some of them? Would it need to be a parallel clinic? So do we need to be next door to our ENT colleagues so that we can pop our heads in uh, and ask them for their help if we need it? Or could this be a standalone clinic? And would that change over time? Um, or is that something that needs to be to be fixed from a governance perspective? We need to know more about um, the knowledge and skills that speech and language therapists need to fulfil this role um, and what additional training and supervision might be required for them to do it effectively and safely. What are the service users' views and experiences of this type of model and what are their clinical outcomes and can we show that, that there is value in doing this um, for our service users? Of course, um, we need the support of our organisations and our managers and our leaders um, in setting up this sort of clinic and, and thinking about what would be um, uh, of interest to them as well. COVID has been an awful experience for everyone, and it is one of the major reasons why waiting lists are so long, but it has undoubtedly rapidly accelerated necessary innovation in healthcare delivery. And the big question is, how do we maintain the momentum of innovation? Has there been a change in culture when it comes to trying new things and doing it safely but quickly? We don't know, but there must be a better way than lurching from funding crisis to funding crisis. A very big thank you to Louise for taking the time to talk to us. As always, a link to the article can be found in the show notes, which is accessible for all RCSL team members. Until next time, keep safe.